Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Catherine Johnson. Catherine is the author of four novels, and she's the first return guest here on the Great Conversations podcast. We spoke last year about her novel Matryoshka, and today she's joining me to discuss her latest novel, Paris Savages. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER. The Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear more of these discussions. Paris Savages tells the story of three budgular people who leave their homes on Gurry, or as the white colonisers call it, Fraser Island, to travel through Europe in the late 19th century. Bonagera, Girano and Dorandera have agreed to travel with Louis Muller to highlight their culture and to petition the English Queen to intervene in the violence and calculated extinction of their people. Join me as we discover Catherine Johnson's Paris Savages. Now, I am joined in the studio by Catherine Johnson. Catherine is the author of four novels. You first met her last year when we discussed Matryoshka on Final Draft, and today she's joining me with her latest novel. It is called Paris Savages. Catherine, welcome. It is so great to have you here. It's so great to be here in studio with you, looking straight across. I know, and I'm, I'm going to confess, Catherine and I had the chance to meet in her hometown of Hobart last week. Um, so it's been a, I've been hotly anticipating this conversation. Paris Savages, it tells the story of three budgular people who leave their home on Gurry, or as, as white colonisers called it, Fraser Island. They travel to Europe in the late 19th century. It's Bonangera, or Bonnie, Girano and Dorandera, they've agreed to travel with Louis Muller to highlight their culture and to petition the English Queen to intervene in the violence and calculated extinction of their people. But of course, as, as we learn when we read Paris Savages, that becomes what seems an, an incredibly hopeful mission that they want to accomplish. In Paris Savages, you work within historical events and the biographies of Bonnie, Girano and Dorandera. How did their story first come to your attention? So, a cast had been found of Bonnie in Lyon in the basement of a storage um, space in a museum. And that was reported on ABC Away, actually, in on, uh, 2011, a program called Cast Among Strangers. And that went on to win a, a New York award, actually, that program. So the the true story of, of the three being taken overseas, a lot of that is captured in that documentary. And the idea of that cast of a young bachelor man from 1882 being found in storage in France was just incredibly moving to me and I I hadn't realised actually even though human exhibition was a form of mass entertainment in the 19th century I I really hadn't realised the extent of that or that these people had gone across then and I couldn't help but wonder what on earth that was all about what was the story behind that what on earth could that have been like and of course the next step is a tricky one for a writer to work out how to tell that story and how to do that respectfully I didn't feel like the story should be one that was kept silent any longer either, although, of course, um, Away did a fantastic job in that documentary. But I felt there was a lot, too, that that needed to be told and the, the emotion and the fiction lends itself to trying to sometimes look at the silences in history because it's a very much a one-sided story. 
So let's then come to, to finding space for narrative voice within the historical record. You utilize a range of narrative voices to move within the narrative. You've created the character of Muller's daughter, um, and through Hilda's diary, we hear very much, uh, I guess, our perspective on the story, as diaries will tend to be. You also have the spirit of Christelle, um, Muller's wife, and she becomes a, sort of an omnipresent guide and can very much take us into spaces that we would not otherwise have access um, what were the concerns, though, that you had and the, the concerns that you felt you needed to balance in telling this story, a story where there are many voices and voices that perhaps you need to, to skirt around the use of? Yeah, so telling the story and point of view is something that's just so central to to this story or well, to many stories. But how to, how to do this one as a non-Indigenous person, non-Aboriginal person, was um, was something I gave an awful lot of thought to. And I spoke to a bachelor academic and artist really early in the process and talked to her about it too. And I felt the best way to do it was to, to not take an Aboriginal viewpoint. And I didn't feel really equipped to do that, to be honest. I was pointed to um, a book of legends by this Aboriginal bachelor lady and um, was able to receive permission to quote a few of those uh, in the book. And that's an authentic bachelor voice that I feel very fortunate to have been able to put into the book. But I didn't want to put um, myself as a first person um, or, or to, to create a first person voice for Bonnie Durandra or Gerano. Um, for the book it had to be there are so many silences in the story I actually went and saw the cast of Bonnie and Leon and that's what struck me you know what if what if that cast could speak what on what stories would it have Mm. to tell and so the silences in the stories are are what I really want to illuminate to Mm. the the idea that there there are other stories that we don't know about and we can only really wonder what what they were I can imagine that in much of the facts of the story as well you you found huge juncture between practices that were contemporary in the late 19th century, particularly some of the scientific ideas, and our modern sensibilities, our modern understandings. What tensions lie for you coming from that modern perspective in representing what is a racist history? Yes, that's right, because people have said that history is a different place as well as a different time, and you you can't... uh, In fact, that ghost voice was helpful to me as well. It's not really apparent until the end who it is but it's it's important uh, to be there to indicate that something's not quite right she has a perspective that that the other characters don't really have in the story and she can see that things uh, are, are not not right as they are and so she's that questioning kind of voice Hilda is too um, but that ghost sort of gives a bit more of a distance because we can't insert our modern sensibilities onto a historic story. If it's, I did at one point write this story in in a sort of alternating modern and then uh, historic, modern historic. So there was a, a modern day researcher who was lo- looking back at the at, at the story, which which would allow a lot more of that kind of um, modern analysis of that colonial history. But the colonial story really needed to be told as it was, I think. And so I have been careful still in the way that I use language and so on uh, without looking away from the history that is there. I was curious as well because there's a particular historical, scientific character, and I'm just trying to think. I think it was Mankel? Um, Or Haeckel? Haeckel, Haeckel. In the story? Yes, and... 
I, I read your portrayal of him and I thought oh, I hated him. Mm. And I thought, gosh, you have created in a story that um, a story that I felt needed a villain, you've created a villain. You've created a, at least an outlet for the reader to direct their, their fury. And then in, in your acknowledgements, in your afterword, you uh, mentioned that some of his scientific views may have inspired um, some of the racial ideas are, that underpinned Nazism. And I thought, wow, m- perhaps you weren't putting too much into that character. Where do you find voice for for a character like that? Yeah, so he he is a, a true character in a sense. He's also a fictionalised character. So I've, I've, I have taken some liberties with Heckle and, and used parts of his character and and made up a lot as well. So, so yes, I think that's... That's quite, that's quite a, a good way of being able to tell historical stories. To be able to 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 find some 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 true characters and things that did have seeds of what were to follow, um, and then and then fill those characters out imaginatively. Yeah, it's too much to say though that he becomes the villain, and there is very much a whole story that needs to be told. Now, on arrival in Hamburg, the trio, so uh, Bonnie, Gerano, and Dorandera, they're they're set to perform at the Tierpark, I think I pronounced that correctly. Yes. Mm. All our German listeners, I apologise, mm. of Karl Hagenbach. Now, the park and its environment, they're set up in contrast, uh, or Hagenbach talks about the contrast, and it's mentioned with the American shows of P.T. Barnum, um, who we, we probably know more immortalised as the greatest showman. But in Paris Savages, you show us the, um, the perspective of him as an arrant exploiter, particularly of the people that he brings into his shows. What do we know about these travelling exhibitions and the public's demand for these spectacles? Because I feel like it would have been a very much recursive process. People were demanding this. It wasn't just that these spectacles were dropped on their laps. No, and they they grew and they grew and they grew. So they they become they became enormous. And at the time where the Bachelor Trio went across, they were just starting to uh, gain a foothold. They became much larger than than that. So my research actually turned into a PhD, and 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 I learnt through that that there were thirty five thousand performers from around the world who were shown during the period of these human zoos, some mm. call them. Um, so the nineteenth century and into the up until the nineteen fifties, in fact. And they were seen by a billion spectators. So that's that's where I think they were very important in terms of people forming these stereotypes about race that that then need to be contested. So and Barnum in The Greatest Showman is a, it's a very sanitised version of Barnum for certain. And it's known that there were two other groups um, of Aboriginal people taken from Palm and Hinchinbrook Island in Queensland, further north. Uh, who were taken by Barnum to America and then to Europe, and they they definitely weren't treated very well. You are listening to Final Draft, and I'm speaking with Catherine Johnson. Her latest novel is Paris Savages, and we are discussing the the historical story that Catherine has fictionalised, and we're looking at the legacy of these these travelling shows. Uh, they were often called anthropological zoos, um, which is just a horrid, horrid term. But I think as much as we can look at the history of it, there's also something that we need to examine as, as modern-day readers and listeners of their legacy. As we travel through Europe with Bonnie, Gerano and Dorandera, we're subjected 
to the exam, or we have to, we, we see the examination, the interrogation that is there in seemingly everything that they do. They have to get authenticity certificates. Can you talk about this idea of authenticity? Um, and particularly, I mean, the, you, there's this great contrast with uh, Bonnie. Is you, you portray him as um, a polyglot. He's very, very clever. He pre- presents as much cleverer than most of the characters that he meets, but he is to maintain authenticity in scare quotes, he needs to not show his his civilised side. Yeah, so the way that they were... Um, it's very likely that Hagenbeck did show the group. It certainly says that in a, a newspaper article that was published in the... Um, the the Dresden newspaper, the Illustrate Zeitung, about a show that they performed in at the Dresden Zoo. And that said that they were shown by Hagenbeck, although I travelled to the tier park, um, the old side of it, and spoke to the archivist, and there isn't a record of them um, by Hagenbeck there. So so Hagenbeck, for his shows, and he was the one that introduced people shows to Europe, so Barnum did it in America and Hagenbeck did it in Europe, and it was really uh, he he wanted people to appear in certain ways. They were natural, exotic, um, all, all these kind of words. And so he didn't want them to appear um, too exposed to European culture and and language and all that kind of thing. It would it would damage the the inverted commas natural um, idea that he wanted to present of these people as. Um, Curiosities from faraway lands that people would come to see, and they did come to see in their in their thousands. And interestingly, he showed. Um, I mean, he showed people from all around the place, including Sami performers from Northern Europe. And when I spoke to academics in Europe about some of these people, it was clear that not all performers were victims in the scenario. Some certainly had a lot of agency in how they were shown and were really able to assert themselves and sign contracts and demand good conditions and even went home and brought more members of their family back to the shows. And so it wasn't always a victim scenario. For It depended a bit on who the showman was and who the people were and, and so on. But I, th- I think that's, that's probably an important point too, not to deny people any agency at all. Mm. We concerned ourselves at the beginning talking very much about voice, how you establish voice within the historical record. And a part of that is because I found what you did so extraordinarily well was create these voices and allow them to play out thoughts, manners of thinking. And I want to note now that this is also a time in our history when we had this idea that science, science was seemingly sweeping away superstition and um, it was going to show truth somehow this is what this is what people believed science was doing and yet we can see in the scene that you create of Bonnie and Gerano's examination in Berlin uh, also later when they're, they're having casts made there's this question of of what does education actually mean um, among especially amongst these anthropological scientists and do they does this education? serve to enlighten, which is what science would have us believe, that we're sweeping away superstition, or as it perhaps becomes apparent, it's actually confirming some very racialized and incorrect prejudices that people have. Well, I think it was actually part of the 
the formation of those prejudices at that time. Mm. So the the shows and the science, the spectacle and the science sort of went hand in hand mm. at that period in history. And not all of the scientists for certain believed in those ideas about racial hierarchy and they were hotly contested in scientific circles, but, mm. but, um, but some did. And some of those ideas were used or picked up by some of the shows, not all of the shows. Some of the shows were quite taken with the skill and the um, the beauty of the performances and that kind of thing. Um, but some of them certainly were um, much more negative in their representations of people and and used certain ideas of racial hierarchy and savage to civilised, inferior and superior and even evolutionary ideas, who's closer to apes and all this kind of thing. Those, those, some of those ideas that were being um, argued in scientific circles that, of course, have been completely refuted, made their way into the shows and into the newspapers and into people's minds. Did you have a sense of what the clash of science and populism looked like back then? Because, I mean, it, it is something that we, we still see today, the way popular thought can overturn science, the way science can be misused. Um, were we, are we looking, are we thinking about something that's particularly different? Have we moved very far? I think we've moved a long way from then. I think the scientific method is something I studied science myself, and the scientific method I think is something that you know that's that's pretty sound. So there was a fair bit of pseudoscience that was going on back then, at the time that was um, that was really damaging. Yeah, and so one of the things that, that I saw in Paris Savages is this journey, this wonderful, heartbreaking journey, and it made me think about where we are today. What can you tell us about the legacy of these shows uh, for ideas that are still pervasive? Can we truly appreciate the damage that was done by this sort of pro- popular propagation of these these very racist ideas that happened in the pseudoscience you, you mentioned? Yeah, so I, I do think those shows were quite important in, in setting those ideas in people's mind, and I think that I think they continue. I saw um, Adam Good's film, The Australian Dream, on the weekend, and, and that was reinforced to me even again, although I've, I've followed that that story over the last few years. Uh, but seeing it there and seeing the 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 crowd response, the camera work, and that was often looking back into the crowd and that ugly crowd sort of roaring and howling, um, made me think of made me think of the way people other 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 people, mm. and I think that's really relevant still in society today. You give some really nice moments. Um, you talked before about the way it, it wasn't that none of the performers had agency. And there are some really beautiful moments where you give Bonnie just absolutely fantastic agency. I'm I'm going to sort of drop them in so I'm not spoiling moments of the story, but very much particularly his talent with languages allows him to speak back, to have voice and to return fire on, on people. Um I'm not really going anywhere with the question with this, but I, I found that was was wonderful. It was just a wonderful part of the story that you were able to to return fire, at least in some small way. I think so. I think that was. Um, I loved it when Bonnie did that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes characters do these things, and you you um, well, you you want them to do those mm-hmm. things too. It's uh, some of the, the messages I'd like to come out of the book are not just that the, the history is confronting and it's uncomfortable and it should be, but there are also ideas about resilience and and bravery and 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 agency and turning the tables. And I think um, Bonnie does mock the crowd in certain circumstances, and and he's you know certainly very brave and is very smart and um, 
and he he makes you look at the audience. He turns the camera off himself and back at, at the audience, which which really is what the book's all about. It's about questioning who the savages in the story are, mm. and and I think that that's you know that's essential. So one thing that I found, you read a book like Paris Savages, it is some hundred and forty odd years on from the historical events that you are you're weaving your narrative through, and so we as readers have have some understanding, if not how this particular story of three people is going to end, but how the broader the broader narrative, uh, as particularly within Australia, is going to go. So it's really hard to hear um, Bonnie's hope that he is going to arrive in England, that he's going to be able to petition the Queen, that he is going to be able to make meaningful change for his people within his lifetime. Um, I also learned from reading your afterward that um, the Budgela people were granted native title to, to Gari in 2014, but we can also see that there is so much still to be done. What has creating this story shown you about reconciling with history or, or can we reconcile with history? What work needs to be done? I think there's so much work that needs to be done. That's a that's such an enormous, enormous question. I think... I think the silences in history need to be reviewed. I think there do need to be, obviously, lots of stories too that are, are told by Aboriginal people themselves. I think that I don't think that non-Aboriginal people should be um, left off the hook, though. I think they need to do work too in terms of post-colonialism or you know decolonising our history or our stories and try and. Well, this, as I hope this book does, shine a light on the fact that there are there are there are parts of our history that we've we've sort of been given one one glance at, which is a very Eurocentric one, and that if we'd had another side of the story, like a contesting side of the story earlier, hmm. maybe maybe some of those stereotypes would have been contested a whole lot earlier, and maybe maybe that would have led to a different I don't know a different a different outcome. Mm. Yeah, decolonizing, decolonizing narratives and having a chance to hear. But I'd probably the, the flip of that is also having an audience that will listen seem to be perhaps in, in incipient steps that we, we should be making. Um, I'm speaking with Catherine Johnson, who is probably questioning whether she will uh, ever come back on the show with uh, that last question I threw at her, which <laughs> is no, nothing nothing greater or smaller than let's solve this today. <laughs> of course, we can't do that, but we can read a book like Paris Savages. And Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions. Thank you for your close reading of the book. And yeah, I hope, I hope fiction somehow brings a, a different sense to this history. That's it for this great conversation with Catherine Johnson. Catherine's new novel is Paris Savages, and it's out now through Simon & Schuster. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft.